0: This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts.
1: Welcome, everybody, back to this edition of Energy Sense, where we discuss all things at the intersection of energy and finance. Uh, I'm excited today to have Hill Vaden with me again. Hi, Hill. How are you?
2: I'm doing well, Brian. How are you?
1: Pretty good. You know, uh, it's Monday morning. This probably isn't being released Monday morning, but it is Monday morning now that we're recording it. And um, it was a, a beautiful, sunny weekend for me here in New York City, which was always nice. And, and naturally, it was a pretty exciting weekend, I think, across the whole U.S. for those American listeners that are dialing in, or yeah. I shouldn't say American listeners. I should say anybody living in America. But then I should also say probably everybody watching around the world as well.
2: Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's necessarily American yeah. specific. <laughs> Absolutely. All the uh, all, all of those glued to their phones and television sets trying to figure out who's counting what in the United States.
1: Well, before we get into that exciting news, though, Hill, and I'm bringing this up because we talked about it actually on a podcast podcast. Uh, was it the last podcast or two podcasts ago? So Alex Trebek died last night.
2: Yes, I saw that this morning and uh, I, thought the first I thought it was you.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I know, it's sad. So Felipe, oh, Felipe Ballera is our guest today as well, sorry. <laughs> um, in case you don't know, I watch Jeopardy every night. We we had a little bit of a nerdy session the other week when we talked about Star Trek and I... I laid bare one of my my little secrets that i watch jeopardy every evening and so last night when the news about alex trebek came out it was very sad although supposedly they pre-recorded episodes and there's enough episodes to get through to mid-december or something like really so yeah so i didn't know this but he apparently stopped recording at the end of october and um because I found it surprising. I was like, I watch him every night, and and you know he looked to be in pretty good shape still. You know, the last episode I saw, but I guess they pre-recorded a bunch, and then um, so they have enough to go through to mid-December. But yeah, so so last night that was a that was a bit of a shocking piece of news. I mean, and a fellow um, Canadian. I know. He was an iconic Canadian, and yeah, he was. He, I feel like he was part of the family. I saw him every single evening. So this is, I, I don't know what they've, I don't think they've announced what they're going to do or, or where Jeopardy is going to go now. Um, I guess maybe they're going to make it an opportunity to potentially, I mean, I don't know, I, I won't speak for Jeopardy, but maybe they're going to try <laughs> to diversify and, and have a different visual uh, to Jeopardy than what they've had for the past, I don't even know how many years he's been the host. I mean, I don't, I think somebody hosted before him, but...
2: Somebody I was reading his obit in the paper today, and I think it was, I want to say 1984 or something like that. Was... Yeah,
1: I mean, it's as long as I ever, my, my grandfather and, and great uncle watched it every night. And I remember from the time I was very little laying on the floor watching with them. I, like, I don't know anybody other than Alex Trebek, but yeah.
2: yeah. And then there's Pat Sajak, and he's still around, right? He's still
1: around, as is Vanna White, and she's still in her heels. <laughs> you know, I, I give her full credit. I, I love to wear a good heel as well, but I have to say that's uh, kudos to her um, yeah. for for still wearing <laughs> those that <laughs> many years in, into into the, the Wheel of Fortune franchise. Yeah. So, um, anyways, happy Monday morning on that <laughs> right. glorious news. Um, so let's just get back on topic. As briefly, our star of the show today is actually Felipe Ballero. And thank you so much for joining us. He is with our Mobility and Energy Futures team. So this is particularly exciting for Hill and I because, I mean, EVs are just everywhere right now with respect to the conversation. And um maybe first and foremost, I mean, I guess that's exemplified by the run-up in Tesla share price over the last year, right? We're at 430, I think, was the last time I checked. And below, I think it was below 60 a year ago? I, it was Before I mean, the
2: split, yeah, I mean, it was because it was, it got I think under 240 or something last year, and then before the split it may have gotten to like 2,500 or 3,000 or something. Um, it was, and Tesla on Friday sold out of Tesla Kila, because they have used the brand recognition from Tesla, Elon has, and so Earlier this year, he sold out of Tesla Short Shorts, which were a pair of short shorts that obviously were directed at all of the investors who had shorted his shares. And so those sold out instantly. And he made some joke on Twitter maybe a year or two ago about uh, tequila and how he was going to leave the company or something nuts like that. And so he created Tesla Kila for $250 a bottle, I think. And it was sold out and on eBay for $1,000 a bottle by the end of the day uh, on Friday.
1: Elon, you know, he's our media darling, right? That's brilliant. Well, well, I guess one of our media darlings. So there's a few of them out there these days, I guess. But uh, but yeah, for those of you, so this is an audio recording. It's obviously an audio podcast, but I, we have our cameras on. And I just uh, feel in the background is laughing hysterically. <laughs> <laughs> and actually put his his hands to his head. So let's just jump right in to what he might have to say about all of this or all things Tesla and EV related because <laughs> it seems as though he's got an opinion. So uh, welcome and thanks for joining, Hill and I. We're very excited to hear what you have to say.
3: <laughs> thanks for having me, Brian and Hill. Thanks for being here. Did sure. you get any of the Tesla I did not, no. <laughs> I, I actually did, was not even aware that it existed. <laughs>
2: Well, it's hard to find now, apparently.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so first is first things first. Election results are arguably election results, d- depending um, on how you want to look at things of, of what happened over the weekend. How do you feel on the back of that? Kind of where the directions are now headed, and what do you think it means for EVs or the or the general energy future space?
3: Sure. So there's certainly been a lot of uncertainty over the last three and a half, four years with regards to the direction that the U.S. was going to go in terms of either increasing fuel economy standards or there being some sort of centralized push for the decarbonization of the light vehicle fleet. And I think what this does is it signals with the Biden campaign having come out and said that they're going to advocate for some sort of Green New Deal, that there will be at least some support for the Uh, adoption of electric vehicles. Now, that's obviously dependent on what he can lead in terms of accomplishing any sort of meaningful legislation. It's very much likely that the Senate will remain under Republican control, which would signal that there'd be a lot of contention around there being any sort of stimulus for the purchasing of new electric vehicles. Um, But perhaps what can be done um, or what would likely happen is the state of California will be given an additional waiver um, um, or their waiver for their Clean Air Act uh, standards are are going to remain in place, right? So essentially what that means is they're going to be able to set their own air quality standards. They're going to drive uh, towards a decarbonized light vehicle fleet. The governor, Gavin Newsom, has signed an executive order um, mandating that The agencies, the state agencies, go out and look for how to actually accomplish this. It's not any sort of legislation yet. The California Air Resources Board has to come up with the legislative plan for having this happen. Um, But what it does signal California being the largest uh, light vehicle market in the country is that they're more likely than not going to bring other states on board, right? You have your other Section 177 states that follow the California Clean Air Act standards or at least their zero-emission vehicle uh, ambitions. And what this essentially does is it signals to automotive manufacturers that, hey, there's going to be demand for electric vehicles. To what extent, it remains yet to be seen. But nonetheless, something's going to happen, whereas the U.S. has really been left on its own island with regards to the rest of the world. Europe has made um, a lot of progress in pushing new sales of electric vehicles, as has China. Um, And the U.S. has kind of been left behind. There's this real big urban rural divide with regards to the electrification story.
2: Is that, how about, um, so so new sales I think are upright, but the total penetration due to the existing ownership is rather low. And I've heard Cash for Clunkers as an idea thrown out to try to take some of the uh, fossil fuel-powered cars off the road. It, it, do you think that gains traction uh, over the next you know, few years?
3: Sure. Um, I think over the next few years, it it's going to be re- remain a little bit of a challenge, right? When you look at the types of electric vehicles that exist in the market today, they still are relatively expensive. Um, there's a very good argument to be made that perhaps they're not as expensive as we think, right? We like to think in terms of um, of absolute purchase price, um, but in, in reality, there are a number of incentives or rebates that exist either for manufacturers or states. I mean, even the state of Texas, which is an oil and gas state, um, has an electric vehicle incentive. There's a $2,500 rebate for the purchase of a new electric vehicle. And a lot of people don't know about that. It's not widely advertised. Um, there's also the fact that the average transaction price for a vehicle in the U.S. this year is north of $38,000. And that's higher than the median income, right? So when you start thinking about what people are actually spending for their vehicles, it's not unreasonable to look at, you know, the thirty-five, dollars $40,000 EVs that exist in the market today that are relatively small and have decent range, 200 or 250 miles of range. And then when you add on top of that, either the federal rebates that may or may not exist for specific vehicle types or manufacturer incentives and then state incentives, a lot of times those vehicles come down in price around twenty-five or so thousand dollars, which is well below the average transaction price of a new vehicle.
1: So you think though that, that policy is necessary or these yes. incentives and rebates and things like that? That the yes. that the EV fleet isn't necessarily gonna be able to take off purely off market dynamics at this point. It really not does at this point. The stimulus. No, no. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. And, and that's just because not just the purchase price, right? But there's a lot of uncertainty. For example, does there exist a broad secondhand market for these vehicles? Do they depreciate faster than an internal combustion engine vehicle? Is there enough charging infrastructure to meet all of your transportation needs? Are there any other concerns that people have? For example, if you live in a cold climate, your range is going to decrease in a cold climate, just as if you were to go outside in Vermont, say in the middle of December and you pull out your phone, and you don't have it insulated in any way, your battery runs out relatively quickly because of the way that the chemistry actually works inside of your batteries. And the same is true for an electric vehicle, right? In order to keep that from happening, the vehicle uses its own energy to keep the battery within a certain operating temperature, and that consumes extra energy, making the vehicle less efficient. So your range is effectively decreased by 20 to 30%, depending on the kind of vehicle that you have. And if you're daily requirements for transportation or vehicle miles travel, they're such that you're not going to get through the day without having to recharge and the infrastructure is not there. That's going to be a roadblock. It's a barrier for adoption. right? So there's still a lot of these things that have to be worked out. Is there any skewness in sales where the warmer parts of the country are buying more electrical vehicles than Minnesota? Yes. um, But I think that it's less a function of climate and more a function of The direction that a given state is going in, right? The state of California, um, (laughs) yes, you have mountains when you start going towards like Tahoe, um, but the state of California has the highest penetration of electric vehicles. But then when, and they also have a lot of incentives for it, right? Both from a municipal level as well as a state level. Um, And then you also have manufacturers that have incentives there because of previous um, quotas that they had to meet for the Uh, the Obama era standards, right, because they didn't want to be out of compliance. So they sold a lot of compliance vehicles to help bring up their overall fleet averages. But then you also have utilities that are getting in the game, right? If they can sell power or electricity to consumers during off-peak times, they can still make use of some of the renewables that are being generated at night when demand isn't necessarily there. Now, when you move further south and you get to the state of Texas, there's very little support for electric vehicles, but there's actually a very large and growing renewable power sector, right? There's a lot of wind in this, in western Texas, and that gets fed into um, other parts of the state. But Texas is actually the fastest growing electric vehicle market in the country today, right, wow. um, on, a, on a volume basis. And that's without there really being any sort of strong marketing efforts. There's not a lot of state Support for it. The rebate that I was telling you about is $2,500. Not a lot of people know about it. It's limited in number. So I think 2,500 or 3,000 rebates that can be given out. But nonetheless, it's growing, right? And those vehicles are selling in, in Dallas, San Antonio, Houston, and Austin primarily. So around, around your large, um, denser urban centers.
1: And I would argue Texas probably doesn't have the, the social pressure either. I mean, you, I think you could probably say in California there's a bit of a um, social pressure probably to, to <laughs> yeah, adopt some yeah. EVs, at least in the metro, uh, metropolitan areas. Can we talk about the value chain a little bit, though? I mean, there's got to sure. be – are there bottlenecks that we see emerging in the value chain? That's always the biggest thing when we when we see these sort of new technologies come to the forefront, right, is oftentimes they get pinched in the value chain with respect to some, some sort of scarcity or, you know escalating price or, or whatever that might be what what where are the weaknesses do we think right now in that value
3: Or if there are any. It, yeah no i i think yeah there, there certainly is right as as everything is ramping up some manufacturers or automotive manufacturers haven't been able to get their hands on batteries um just because others have secured um longer larger uh contracts for battery purchases and so that keeps certain volumes off the market for computing manufacturers, um, but also on the metal side, right? When you start looking at the components that make up a modern lithium-ion battery that's used for powering these electric vehicles, there are issues around cobalt, right? A lot of it's mined in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, There are some issues there. And we're already seeing a response from battery manufacturers in terms of the chemistry of the batteries, right? They're adapting by changing Uh, The makeup or the composition of the batteries so that they rely less on the more scarce or more difficult to procure metals. And you're you're seeing that already. Right. Some folks are moving to lithium phosphate batteries away from your more traditional lithium ion batteries that are that are used right now by the likes of Tesla um, and and other larger uh, automotive manufacturers. So they're they're thinking about this. Right. The European Union is incentivizing um, or pushing for the construction of sites that will be able to not only make the sample packs there, whereas a lot of that's being done in, in China and in other um, Pacific, Asian Pacific countries. Um, there's a little bit of it in the U S with the Tesla gigafactory. They're building another factory in Austin, primarily for the manufacturing of, of vehicles, but I believe there's also going to be some, um, some battery capacity there as well. And general motors is doing the same, right? They've made a strong commitment or at least, they're positioning themselves for full electrification and they're following through on those commitments, right? They just a couple of weeks ago announced the uh, the Hummer EV, so their first electric truck, which makes sense um, since that's where the market is today. Um, but they're also going to be building batteries here as well, right? So they're starting to diversify the supply chain because there are some uncertainties with regards to politics, trade war tensions that exist today that perhaps may not next year so there there are a lot of moving pieces and some of them are very difficult to address but nonetheless as it seems that the industry is moving towards this this decarbonization of the light vehicle fleet you're increasingly seeing more and more action to address the various bottlenecks or pinch points that we're seeing
2: so looking at that also where you know, there's a lot of focus, obviously, on you know Tesla and GM and Nikola and Nikola. I'm not sure if I've got to say it, but where are the competitive advantages in this? That, you know, I, I think Tesla, for example, owns the whole package, right? And it owns the technology inside the car as well as the car. Whereas I think a lot of the traditional auto manufacturers, to to oversimplify it, are just building shells to move around someone else's software. And you've got Mobileye or Intel and NVIDIA and all these other companies that have the IP that is just sitting on somebody else's aluminum structure. Is, is, is that at all accurate? Or you know, do some of the traditional auto manufacturers, are they bringing something to the table that, that is going to give them advantage longer term other than Tesla?
3: Interesting question, Hill. And I think also a difficult one to answer, right? Electric vehicles are generally speaking easier to manufacture than an internal combustion engine. Right. It's I guess you could go out and buy an internal combustion engine and then build a shell around it. Um, But that's very difficult to do. Right. You're going to have to somehow come to an agreement with another OEM to provide them with the engine or complete powertrain for the vehicle that you're trying to power um, without infringing on their market share. And that's a lot of times very difficult to to do. And so we don't see it very often. Um, More likely what you typically see is collaborations between different OEMs and vehicle models. So they'll both sell, you know, a vehicle that has very similar internals but very different shells. Whereas with electric vehicles, yeah, it's it's, just, they're just simpler to make. And so the competitive advantage I think today lies in how much of the value chain can you control such that one, it obviously optimizes costs for you, but also helps to improve the customer experience. Right, I think Tesla, for example, has made a very strong commitment to providing everything for the consumer. And consumers that are buying Teslas are, generally speaking, very satisfied with the product that they're receiving. Whereas if you're purchasing an electric vehicle from any other manufacturer, your ownership experience is very different. Right, The software isn't as refined as a Tesla software, for example. The charging infrastructure is a bit more difficult to deal with in terms of there are a number of charge points that you can plug into and they're run by different companies. Mm -hmm. And because they're run by different companies, you generally have to have a different app for each one of those or a different subscription to each one of those. So it makes it a bit cumbersome to navigate through that process. Whereas if you have a Tesla and you only plug it into Tesla chargers, you don't need to do anything. The the supercharging network recognizes your car as soon as you plug it in. So that's relatively simple and straightforward for the consumer. And I think that explains their success. Now, from the OEM side of things, I I think it's too early to tell. Hill, I think that the competitive advantage question is one where it's it's still being decided, right? I think OEMs today have, for the most part, you know, they reach out to their suppliers who specialize in making small components that make up uh, a complete vehicle, and that helps them to focus on marketing, um, designing vehicles, understanding what their consumers want as well as bringing new engine technologies without having to worry about the small bits and bops that you would have, uh, have to have manufactured yourself if you're doing everything under house like Tesla is doing. And so it, I don't know, I, I, that's an excellent question. I, I'm curious personally to see how that plays out.
2: It feels like the uh, Apple versus PC almost where Apple had, you know, no jacks to input other people's stuff, but the whole thing was, you know, baked and ready and easy to use whereas the, the others are going to give you more flexibility but
3: maybe isn't the competitive
2: differentiation that somebody like tesla has yeah yeah
3: that's, that's an excellent analogy right it, it, it ultimately comes down to what is the consumer going to want and when you look at today for example in the us between 70 and 75 percent of new vehicle sales are trucks and suvs whereas yeah. it's just you know 20 to 25 percent or 25 to 30 percent are cars passenger cars so sedans hatchbacks station wagons etc and when we think about okay what are the types of EVs that exist in the market today the teslas are primarily sedans and i have the model x and the model y which are both crossover SUVs, if you will and they're selling relatively well so i think that that market share of smaller more affordable vehicles is kind of i think tesla saturated that market for all intents and purposes and when you look at other things like the chevrolet boat or the nissan leaf they had very rapid adoption rates and it's kind of leveled out and the next frontier for automakers in my opinion is suvs and trucks which is why i believe you saw general motors bringing forward the hummer electric mm-hmm. truck and tesla's latest vehicle that they're going to bring to market is the cyber truck that they're going to be making in texas the largest truck market in the us <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, I think, and I think you're in a unique position because um, you get to spend as much time, you know, visiting the automotive manufacturers, right? So you, you've been in there, seen that space, but you also talk to hydrocarbon, kind of like, you know, typical oil and gas industry side. I mean, let's be honest, everybody's watching this space, including the more traditional energy individuals right so what kind of questions are you getting from them like where are they seeing um, the potential for themselves to retool or or you know integrate themselves kind of into this emerging story as well
3: yeah sure i think the first question that we're always asked is how big of a threat is electrification right because i think ultimately it comes down to how fast is the fleet turnover because obviously if everyone suddenly were driving an electric vehicle there'd be no more oil than it. but realistically speaking and Thinking in more practical terms, there are over 260 million vehicles in the U- U.S. fleet. And in the entire world, there are 1.4 billion vehicles that are 99.95% hydrocarbon powered. And how do you convince someone that doesn't have a lot of dip- disposable income or is, you know, just say your average American family that can't afford to have more than one vehicle to adopt a new technology that remains relatively uncertain in terms of reliability, secondhand market that you could sell your car to, fixing that vehicle or just generally servicing it and traveling to see your family if you live far away um, during the holidays, if infrastructure, excuse me, isn't there. Um, it, it's it's going to be really difficult to to change this, right, especially when even even if you had a healthy adoption rate of electric vehicles today, which in the US sits at 2 to 3% um, of new vehicle sales, it is going to take a very long time to actually turn over the fleet. And so when our clients, our energy clients, are asking the question of what is the biggest threat today to us, on one hand, yes, it is electrification. But on the other hand, what is going to be much more detrimental to the industry in terms of demand degradation, it's going to be increasing fuel efficiency standards, right? Right even if the current EPA standards call for a halting or a holding of of current fuel efficiency standards to the 2020 level for the next five years, every new vehicle that you bring to market today is replacing a less efficient vehicle. That's generally speaking 20 to 30% less efficient. Mm -hmm. And so you have a proportional decrease in fuel efficiency uh, going forward, right? So that's the biggest threat today to the energy industry. It's just increasing fuel efficiency standards. And even if there isn't a mandated efficiency standard increase that's being dictated to automotive manufacturers by the EPA, automotive companies are still planning or baking into their new vehicles or new vehicle models. Efficiency standard increases, right? They just bake it in. As the technology becomes available, um, where it gets less costly, it's passed down or shared across uh, different vehicle types as new efficient Efficiency standards are pushed overseas. The technologies also trickle back into the US market, right? Because these are global companies. Whatever they're doing overseas, eventually it's going to come to our market as well and vice versa. With the exception of V8s and V6s. (laughs) In the US, you have more V8 and V6 equipped vehicles than anywhere else in the world combined. It's just startling to look at the statistics. But but yeah, so they are kind of drifting a little bit, which I tend to do when discussing this this this, <laughs> this topic. I think another one that we all, another question that we also get a lot of times is this question around hydrogen, right? The question around hydrogen I think makes sense if you're thinking from a refiner's perspective, right? You have equipment on the ground. If demand goes away, you're going to have to find out what to do, right? If 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 gasoline and diesel demand, for example, were to suddenly disappear, what can you do as a refiner? Well, you can start making more petrochemical feedstocks. You can retool a little bit, change some of your catalysts to manufacture more of the feedstocks that a petrochemical plant would need or want. But you could also make more hydrogen, right? You already have reactors in place where you could reconfigure it and make hydrogen. You have pipelines across the country that you could use to distribute the hydrogen with. But from an automotive standard or from an automotive industry perspective, they, generally speaking, aren't moving as fast with hydrogen fuel cell technologies as they are battery electrics, right? And so that's been really interesting to see, which is automotive clients, be them manufacturers or suppliers or anyone else that's related to the industry, they're really focused on electrification, whereas our energy clients are very focused on, hey, what happens with hydrogen next? So these are two very different things that are being asked about, right? and just looking at the hydrogen question overall, hydrogen fuel cell vehicles are just, they're they're about 10 years behind electric vehicles, right? In terms of sales, infrastructure, research and development, um, customer awareness or consumer awareness. And with a few exceptions, I think around the world in places like Japan, South Korea, where the government is trying to push the powertrain technology, we're not seeing a lot of movement. So.
2: And maybe this is a a good kind of last question to to give a different perspective. You've talked about energy companies and auto companies um, from the consumer perspective and driver perspective. One of the things I'll say that concerns me with electric vehicles or hydrogen vehicles or whatever, three of us all live in big cities. I hate sitting in traffic. You know, I I think with ride sharing and Uber and all of that, that that has in a sense encouraged more cars to come onto the road Mm -hmm. when traffic is its worst with rates being low and finance being flexible are people going to start buying more of their own cars and put more cars on the road and so we're cleaner and greener but it takes us forever to get anywhere or is is some sort of urban planning some sort of i mean there's a the the wonderful onion headline from years ago that 90 percent of people favor public transportation for other people Are, are we or are we setting ourselves up for even more gridlock than we've already got? It'll just be easier to breathe while we're in that gridlock. <laughs> well,
3: yeah. So you fix always one problem so optimistic, and though. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we are starting to see a like cities, for example, are are starting to move such that they're addressing this very question. Right on one hand, they want to address. The question of pollution, or just local air quality, um, but also congestion. And so, in the U.S., you have examples in New York and San Francisco, where the local governments are experimenting with restricting access to cars altogether, or just internal combustion engine cars via, um, or rather through certain streets or neighborhoods. And they're they're gathering data there, right, to see how that actually entices people to act one way versus another, whether it makes them walk um, or ride a bike or a scooter or, or if they then turn to public transportation. So I think that's it's going to take off. Right. I mean, ultimately, the only way that you solve any of the issues that you brought uphill is with some sort of central planning around public infrastructure. There's just absolutely no way around it. If you are a ride sharing company or a ride hailing company, from your perspective, I think that you want to be part of the solution, right? You can provide transportation that's more flexible than public transport most of the times, but the only way you get around the issue of, as you mentioned, during high congestion times, there being an incentive for people to actually get road because that's when they're gonna make the most money is to force efficiency increases, which can only come via pooling, right? And so if you don't have pooling occurring with ride hailing then you create congestion and you're seeing places like china that started to experiment with pooling mandates or having targets for for companies and that could come via either carrot or stick if you will right you could give incentives or you could just say you can't do it you have to do this and so it it has to be a an all-hands-on-deck type of situation to address all of the issues. It can't be one or the other, and the same goes for electrification. Electric vehicles today are expensive. There's a lot of uncertainty with regards to the technology and infrastructure that support it, as well as the familiarity and level of comfort that people have with making a relatively big decision in their lives, right? I mean, it's it's the second largest expenditure that most of us make in our lives and it has to be a combination of everything right if if we are to address the issue of climate change of uh, worsening air quality we we have to start thinking about how can we make the most impact the fastest way possible it's not how do we get rid of it all at once because that's going to take a long time right if we've got 260 plus million vehicles in the road you they're not going to disappear overnight even if you were to scrap them where do you where do you put all of those vehicles?
1: I think it's so interesting because, um, and obviously this is a conversation to you know keep up with over the next many years, I assume. But uh, you know we've got family in Germany, and 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 I think they had to turn in their diesel car um, and and get a new car last year. I think there was there was something that might have happened um, with respect to regulation. But uh, I guess you know it'll be interesting to see because there's so many varied regional approaches right now be it country to country but mm-hmm. actually even within the US state to state and um, that sort of disjointed movement towards the electri- electrification of the of the fleet as well as you know general um, energy futures policies is something that's keeping us all on our toes right now and and being watched by everyone so we really appreciate you joining us for that conversation um i don't know if hill if he has any any lasting thoughts on this or if there's anything else that uh philippe would like to impart on us with his great wisdom um with respect (laughs) to the space or even his outlook for the week but um if not we will we will wrap up and thank you very much for joining hill
2: yeah thank you this is great you're
1: gonna go shopping this weekend for a new ev
2: no, I've got old. Uh, I've got old <laughs> gas-fired or gas-fired, you know, gas-powered automobile. Uh, that, that is low frills. Because the other thing, when when I last bought my car, I was like, this this car is going to depreciate so fast that there's no point in me buying anything nice. Uh, but but I'm hoping I can give it to my son when he turns 16, and that I don't have to go buy an an EV. There you go. <laughs> Whenever that happens. <laughs>
1: Well, there you go. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us again for this um, session of Energy Sense. We hope you enjoyed the conversation, and we will be back with more probably next week. So stay tuned. Thanks, everyone.
3: Thanks. Thanks.
0: To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com energyblog You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com
2: this podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by ihs market to learn more about ihs market energy solutions visit ihsmarket.com energy that's com forward slash energy